I'd like you to turn to the, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12 and verse number 28. The theme that I believe is in keeping with what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us as a congregation, as a church. Direction, I believe, in which we're headed, that God wants us to head. But an area which we're desirous of, and yet an area that might be new for, for some people, and an area that we need instruction from the Word of God in. Matthew 12, verse number 28. Responding to accusations from the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus only cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. In his remarks, he says in 12.28, But if I cast out demons, devils, evil spirits, by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The message that Jesus preached is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, has arrived. The gospel were to take to a lost and a dying world is the kingdom of God has arrived. Protestant theology has tended to reduce the gospel down to a a message of personal salvation by which I know I can go to heaven when I die. Thank God for that, but the gospel is much, much, much larger than that. And the message that Jesus preached in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. And he says, if I, by the Spirit cast out demons, then you know that something is breaking into history. Then you know that the long-awaited kingdom for which the, the saints have believed for centuries after centuries after centuries, and they died and didn't see it happen. But when you see activity of the Holy Spirit, especially in the casting out of demons, it's a good sign you're not waiting any longer. The kingdom has Arrived. Hallelujah. What is the message that we're going to take to the world? That Jesus is the King. And the kingdom has arrived. It's impossible to read in the Gospels and the book of Acts, it's impossible to read all that and miss the miracles. Miss the miraculous. To take away the miraculous from the ministry of Jesus is to strip Jesus of the power of the kingdom of heaven, which was the message that he came to proclaim. In the Gospels, the arrival of the kingdom always brought a demonstration of supernatural, miraculous power combined with the authoritative teaching ministry of Jesus, this open demonstration of power explains why Jesus became popular so quickly. 
There was no such thing as an empty seat in a church meeting when Jesus was performing miracles. To strip the miraculous away from the Gospels is to strip the message of what it is meant to portray. The statement that Jesus made that we just read shows that Jesus himself believed that miracles are necessary to demonstrate to people that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Any gospel we preach that doesn't involve miracles is not the message of the New Testament. It is not the gospel of the kingdom. There are several summary statements found in the Gospels and in the book of Acts that just would say in a matter-of-fact way that everywhere Jesus went, there were miracles. Acts chapter 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. Matthew 4:23, how Jesus went through Capernaum and through all the villages and through all the land of Israel, going everywhere preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing the sick that were there in. Just a normal matter of fact statement. Jesus said, "You go tell Herod what I'm doing. That today I'm working miracles, tomorrow I'm casting out devils." The miraculous is normal for the kingdom of heaven. He said that was Jesus. After Jesus ascended, the miraculous was normal for the New Testament church. There are a variety of just matter-of-fact statements found in the epistles of the New Testament that suggest that the supernatural activity and the demonstration of the power of God in miracles was normal for the church. In Galatians 3 verses 1 to 5, Paul could say to the Galatians, remembering their history, how they started in the things of God. He that ministers the Spirit to you. He that works miracles in your midst. Does he do it by the Spirit or by the hearing of faith? He just assumes that in their churches there's the ministry of the Spirit and there is the ministry of miracles. Paul would say in his own ministry in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, he says, truly all the signs of the apostle were there, the signs and the wonders with, with much patience. He would say in Romans 15, verses 18 and 19, that he has fully preached the gospel everywhere he went, accompanied with signs and wonders and accompanied with the miraculous. To strip our New Testament of the presence of the Spirit, to strip our New Testament of the gifts of the Spirit, to strip the New Testament of praying for the sick and casting out demons, is to reduce the gospel from what it's supposed to be. Can I hear an amen? Are you in harmony? Are you in agreement with me on this? You, you, you can't read the Gospels and you can't read the book of Acts and not notice the miracles. They're there. Every page, they're there. How many times do you read Jesus healing the blind? How many times does He heal the deaf? How many times does He make the dumb to speak? And how many times do you read He makes the lame to walk? How many times do you read about reaching out to diseased? 
You should have been there at Peter's house that day after he healed his mother-in-law. It says in the next day, if I remember the scripture, right, the entire village was there at the door. You should have been there to see the compassion of God and the love of God and the compassion of Jesus. And Jesus went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed. You should have been there at that meeting when the whole city is gathered at the door because miracles are happening and there is compassion that is being there. There are three times that we have record of in the gospel that Jesus raised the dead. You should have been there at the tomb of Lazarus where Jesus groaned in his spirit, where he was he sighed and he was deeply moved with great compassion. He hated what sin had done to the human race. And he's emotionally charged as he's delivering people from the effects of sin in this world. He should have been there when Lazarus hopped out of that grave. Three times, the daughter of Jairus, the son of the widow of Nain, and Lazarus, three times. Were you there when Jesus walked on water? Were you there when he said to the storm, Peace be still, and the whole storm just went quiet? Were you there when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes? Were you there when he saw compassion, moved on the multitudes with compassion? He says, I'm not responsible, it's not my obligation, but I'm just too compassionate, I just can't let them go hungry, even though it's not my responsibility. And with compassion, he multiplies the bread and the loaves. You should have seen five loaves feed 5,000 people. Incredible. Absolutely incredible stuff. You should have seen that time when the disciples were out all night and caught nothing. And Jesus says, well, throw your net on the other side. You should have seen that boat almost sink from the weight of those fish. You should have been there. Can you, were you there at the wedding when Jesus turned water into wine? What are these stories in our Bible for? Why are they there? Is he the same yesterday, today, and forever? Listen carefully. The message that we are to take to a lost and a dying world is not that Jesus, only that just Jesus forgives sin. The message we are to take is that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Let's not strip the gospel of the power. I'm going to repeat it because it's so necessary, because this is where we're going as a congregation. The gospel is not only that Jesus forgives sins and you can go to heaven when you die. The gospel is the kingdom of heaven has arrived and God is interested in displacing the powers of darkness. Amen? That's why Jesus majored on casting out demons in his ministry. He majored on it. Because casting out demons demonstrates in the most visible way possible that he's come to displace the kingdom of darkness. He talked about binding a strong man. I've come to bind the strong man. And every miracle that Jesus performed was the binding of 
the strong man. When he sent out his 70 or 72 disciples, he says, go everywhere two by two and preach everywhere and remember what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to heal the sick. He even told them to raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. And they came back higher than a kite. They came back excited. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, yeah, I saw the devil hate you for it. I saw the devil fall. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You see, the gospel is about displacing the powers of darkness. Even the enemies of Jesus had to acknowledge that he worked miracles. It could not be denied that Jesus came in power to work miracles. So they had to try to find a way of discrediting the authority by which he did it. Oh, it's by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They had to invent a reason because they certainly didn't want to hear the message that he had to bring. Now, here's the problem of growing up in the West. Growing up in affluent countries. We have a problem. And that problem is that we are victims of what history calls the Enlightenment. That's a period of history in Europe that rationalizes everything. If it can't be scientifically proved, it doesn't exist. And we are brought up with that, and we are trained with that. Therefore, we find it very difficult to believe in the presence of miracles. But because we're believers, we do believe in them, but really at a distance. Some other country somewhere else. We do believe in them, but at a distance. And therefore, in the West, even in Pentecostal churches, there is no real expectation of the supernatural. There is no dynamic activity of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit seems to have been written out, preferring to keep the Holy Spirit as a silent, unseen, and unfelt influence somewhere there in the background. Our culture is so different than the culture that exists in the Gospels. Our culture is so medically advanced. Listen to this. Our culture is so medically advanced that we tend not to trust God because we don't have to. We're so medically advanced, actually, that we don't like to see sick people. We, this culture tends to keep sick people out of sight because we feel very awkward in their presence. We tend not to be comfortable in the presence of people who are lame. We don't know how to deal with people who have cancer. If we see them in the shopping mall and somebody has glossed all their hair and they're wearing a bandana, you just don't know what to do with them. We know that from experience. We just are not comfortable with that. Um, Sick people tend to be hidden away in our culture. In the West where we grew up, this is amazing, If you have a blemish, you think that's the reason for feeling bad about yourself. We don't even want to appear with a blemish, never mind a sickness. There's a reason to hide away, I've got a blemish. We've got to cover it up somehow. We're just not comfortable in the midst of sickness. But the world in which Jesus grew up was very, very different. That world is where the sick and the lame were part of everyday life They were not hidden away. They were part of everyday life. In other cultures and other parts of the world, the spirit world is the very lens by which they understand life. 
And therefore, they expect supernatural phenomena because the spirit world is far more real than the secular physical world in many cultures of the world. For this reason, you can hear of great reports of miracles and healings in other lands far more than you do here in the, in the modernized West. One of the great needs that we have is we need revival. Amen? We need revival. But you know what? We need more than revival. We need a reformation. We need to change the way we think. Because we could have revival, but if we don't change the way we think, in a very short time, we'll fall back to our default position. There has to be a change of mindset. Now, when it comes to miracles, people who do go after miracles in the West seem there's a ditch on this side and there's a ditch on this side. People tend to fall in a ditch even in the West because they create signs and wonders movement without understanding the message of the kingdom. And I want to speak to that. Signs and wonders movement without understanding the message of the kingdom. So I want to suggest some things by which we can move forward in what we believe God wants us to do as a congregation. How do we get a healthy balance between expecting the supernatural intervention of God and yet keep it in line with the heart of Jesus and the heart of Scripture? Let me suggest some things. The first thing I want to suggest that the miracle stories that we read are not illustrations of some sort of moral lesson. They are not. Sunday school material, and here I go, Sunday school material has been very guilty of stripping miracle stories in the Bible from the miraculous. They are turned into moral lessons only. In other words, when we see Jesus work a miracle, it's supposed to teach us that God has compassion, which he does. Or it's supposed to teach us that we must have faith, which we should. Or there's some sort of, uh, we've got to learn to do good, like Jesus did. Well, that's all true. But those miracle stories are not to teach us any of those things. Those miracle stories are to teach us that it is the will of God to displace the powers of darkness. That's why they're there. And if we get moral value out of it, good. But they're not given to us for moral value. They're given us because our assignment is to displace the powers of darkness. And we must not reduce the miracles to anything less than that. The second thing we need to realize, well, that was Jesus. He was God. Uh, Excuse me. Never in the Gospels does it ever suggest that Jesus performed miracles to prove that he was God. Never. The New Testament never once makes that point. When the crowds responded to his amazing miracles, they tended to make claims that he was a prophet. They didn't say he was the Son of God. They claimed that he was a prophet, and they even called him Messiah, but their definition of Messiah was a very secular definition. The New Testament makes it clear that Jesus never performed miracles because he was God. But listen carefully. Every miracle Jesus did, he did as a man filled with the Holy Ghost. He was the pattern of what it means to be spirit-filled 
and spirit-led. Never once did Jesus do a miracle out of his divinity or deity. He did it as a man filled with the Holy Ghost. That's why he said he was led by the Spirit. And being full of the Spirit, he went out in Luke 4.14. That's why he said in Luke 4.18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. That's why it says in Luke 5.17, And the power of the Lord was present to heal. That's why it says in Acts 2.22, That he was a man approved of God with miracles and signs and wonders. That's why it says in Acts 10.38, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. The miracles are not a sign that Jesus is divine because Jesus performed every miracle as a man full of the Holy Ghost. Let's understand that. Let's not understand that. So, how do we move forward in understanding these things? How do we keep ourselves in, in Scripture and yet move forward in the things of the Spirit of God? I'm going to suggest some things. We have to see miracles that Jesus did against the Old Testament background. The first thing we need to see is that God desires to reveal himself through gracious acts of power over nature and over human history. The important thing is this. He never once displayed a miracle just to prove that he's mighty. Never once. He never does the miracle for its own sake. The power of God does not need to be proved. But what the miracles do demonstrate is the nature of God is redemption. That's what we're after. The nature of God is redemptive. And he performs miracles in order to teach people that he can be trusted. That's why he gives miracles, to train people and to teach people that he can be trusted. That is the explicit teaching over and over and over in the Old Testament. God would say, I did not choose you because you were great. I did not choose you because you were mighty in number. I simply chose you because I am love. You have nothing to offer me. You have nothing in your own strength. You have no ability whatsoever. You need me and I am redemptive in nature and so quite of my own gracious free will I perform the supernatural I set you free from the power of Egypt you couldn't flex any muscle to get yourself out of the bondage of Pharaoh I'm the one who opened the Red Sea I'm the one who sent the ten plagues you had nothing to do with it you didn't offer any help whatsoever you had no help to give I did it all as pure grace because I am redemptive I'm true to my word And I want you to know that once you're out of Egypt, you can trust me. That's the purpose of a miracle. To show that God's nature is redemptive and that he can be trusted. He doesn't perform miracles, listen carefully, he does not perform miracles so that we would treat him as a miracle working God who is at our beck and call. We've misunderstood the purpose of miracles. If we we can order God around, do this and do that and do this and do that. Prayer is never telling God what to do. 
Prayer is agreeing with God in what He has revealed He desires to do. We've got to hear the heart of God first. Jesus never performed the miracle on His own initiative. He said, I only do what I see my Father do. Jesus walked by plenty of blind people in His day. Jesus did not raise every lame person up. How many times did He walk in Jerusalem through the gate called Beautiful? How many times did that happen? It was Peter and John who raised him up, not Jesus. He only did what he saw his father do. Another important thing, when we move into the dynamics of Pentecost, the dynamics of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, another important principle is this. Jesus never performed a miracle in order to get people to follow him. Don't follow me for miracles. Never. In John chapter 6, when 5,000 followed him because he multiplied the bread, he ends up having an argument with them. He says, the only reason you're in this meeting is because you ate the bread. Don't labor for the bread that perishes. But unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no part of this. And they all walked away from him. Jesus doesn't perform miracles to get a following because the church is not built on the foundation of miracles. The church is built on the foundation of the Word and He will never let miracles replace the ministry of the Word. Never. In John chapter 2, in verses 23 and 24, it says that Jesus performed many miracles in Jerusalem And everybody believed in him because of the miracles. Now listen to what it says in those verses. They believed in him, but the next verse says, but Jesus did not believe in them. That's interesting. They believed in him for the miracles, but Jesus would not use them as a foundation upon which to build. He didn't trust himself to people who flocked after miracles. Miracles are necessary. Miracles are expressions of God's mercy and God's compassion for the oppressed. But he won't build a church using that as its foundation. God can't get the cart before the horse on on this thing. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these miracles are always called mighty works. Only John refers to miracles as a sign. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't refer to them as signs. When John refers to a miracle that Jesus did as a sign, and in John's Gospel there are seven signs, they are meant to look beyond the miracle itself to see a revelation of who Jesus is. Jesus multiplied bread, I am the bread of the world. Jesus gave a blind man sight, I am the light of the world. And every miracle in the Gospel of John contains a revelation of the character of Jesus. But in John 4, verse 48, he says, I don't want faith to be based upon the fact that you received the miracle. Faith has got to be that you know who I am. And there's a big difference there. Another point, I've said this already, but Jesus never performed a miracle to prove who he was. Never. You and I don't have to prove to anybody who we are. That's an important thing. As we reach out, I don't have to prove to anybody who I am. I know who I am, and I don't have to prove it to anybody. It's good to know who you are. It's good to know who you are. 
And when they asked Jesus, give us a sign to prove who you are, the fact is, he never, ever satisfied their request. He never gave people signs who asked for them. Matter of fact, he says, you've got to be blind. You can't read the signs. I said, you can tell by the weather what kind of day it's going to be. You can tell by the red sun what kind of the weather's going to be. How is it you can read the, the weather, but you can't read the signs? He would never perform. And the reason they didn't get it is because they had a different definition of what a sign is. And we're going to get to that. Their definition of a sign is that God has to do something in a cataclysmic way. The thunder's got to flash. The lightning's got to flash. The thunder's got to roll. The glory has got to boom like a time bomb and go off. And you've got to shake and you've got to feel and you've got to... All these kinds of things. There's got to be some traumatic, overwhelming display of triumphant power. Give us a sign. Jesus said, boy, have you ever missed the point of miracles? You think I'd get a good following if we would just do that? Is that what we're going to build this on? You know, you missed the point of the sign. He would never give them what they wanted like that. Another thing that's interesting is that Jesus never once performed a miracle on his own behalf. Never. Oh, I believe in miracles, so God give me a miracle. I believe in miracles, so God give me a miracle. Oh, I believe in miracles, God, so give me a miracle. He never once, in all the Gospels, never once performed a miracle for his own benefit. As a matter of fact, he refused to. In the 40 days in the wilderness, you're hungry, turn these stones into bread, the devil said. He didn't do it. He would not do anything for himself, of himself, or to promote himself. He would never use a miracle to do that. Extending miracles to other people was virtually unlimited. But using miracles for himself, it was non-existent. An important principle that we've got. And here's another issue. Against the wishes of his disciples at times, Jesus never used miracles against his enemies. Never once did Jesus use a miracle against somebody who opposed him. Never. His enemies taunted him with it when Jesus was hanging on the cross. Oh, he who saved others can't save himself. They taunted him that he wouldn't use his miracles. Like, for instance, when his disciples said they went through Samaria, they didn't receive Jesus, you know. Should we be like Elijah and call fire down and consume them? Jesus said, hey, you don't understand the kingdom of heaven. There is no fire falling down to consume his enemies. Remember when they called Elisha, oh, bald head? Remember that story? And the she-bears came out and devoured these guys? Well, in the ministry of Jesus, there were no she-bears coming out to devour anybody. Jesus never used a miracle against his enemy. And the crowds began to abandon Jesus because miracles brought the crowds. But when the crowds realized that Jesus would not perform miracles at their beck and call, the crowds that came because of miracles left Jesus. There's an important principle there. They left Jesus. And actually, this is the reason, at the end of the Gospels, that the disciples decided to abandon Jesus under pressure. You know why they ran away? Because according to 
Mark 14.50, according to Matthew 26.56, when those disciples fled at the end of the Gospels, they couldn't understand why such a powerful, miracle-working person like Jesus, who could do so much, to whom nothing was impossible, why did he not do more than he did? Why did he do so little when he could have done so much when his enemies came against him? And because Jesus refused to use the miraculous in his own defense, even his disciples had it. And they had to relearn and understand the whole story of the kingdom of heaven. So how then are we to understand the miraculous? How can we avoid falling into the pits? Because we want Pentecost, folks. And I want miracles. And I want to pray for the sick. And I want to cast out demons. And I want to see signs and wonders. Because the message we're preaching is the kingdom has arrived. And Jesus is interested in displacing the powers of darkness in people's lives. He breaks the power of sin. He delivers from demonic bondage. He delivers from mental oppression. He delivers from physical sickness. He does. Just in this conference I was at, a brother from India was there, which I'll be there next month for a week in India doing another week-long conference to the same intensity that I was just in. And he sought me out. He says, Brother, can you help me? Can you pray for me? He said, just two weeks ago in India, demonic, oppressed woman, demon-possessed woman, confronted him. Reminds me of the story in Mark 5, that gathering demoniac, wrestling with this open manifestation of demonic power. So I did what I did could with that woman. But there's been something on me for two months. Demonic thoughts in my head tortured me for two months. Can you help me? I said, sure, I can help you. And just he and I alone in a room. Demonic torment for two months because of this encounter, open encounter with the powers of darkness in India. I said, sure, I can help you. I prayed with him, laid hands on him, and prayed with him. And thank God the torment left him. Folks, this is a war. This is a war. And in the West, it's all hidden in the background. We don't even want to acknowledge that it exists. But thank God, in ten minutes, that thing that had tormented him for two months was gone. This is a war that we are in. The good news is that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And there is power to displace the powers of darkness. I want a gospel that doesn't just give a hope after you're dead. I want a gospel that gives hope in the here and in the now. In the midst of an evil world, Jesus has come to liberate people. 
This is the message of the kingdom of heaven. So how are we going to move forward in understanding God's heart for the miraculous without falling into the error of of thinking that we're great elite people because there's miracles or falling into the area of a signs and wonders movement that chases miracles instead of the truth of the word of God. What are some of the things that we can deal with here? Give us a sign, they said. And they failed to see that miracles are signs already. But people who have the wrong motivation in their heart can't read the signs that miracles are supposed to give. Jesus could say, Woe unto you, Bethsaida. Woe unto you, Chorazin. If the miracles which had been done in you, if they were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long time ago. There's a purpose for the miracles. Now here's what miracles are meant to tell this world. They are meant to tell the world that the kingdom of heaven has interrupted our lives and the kingdom of heaven has broken into history. Without the miracles, they'll never know that. They're a sign that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Remember John the Baptist said, Are you he that should come or do we look for another? Well, the answer Jesus said was, just go tell John what you see. What are you seeing? The blind are seeing? Deaf are hearing? The lame are walking? And by the way, throw it in as well that you see the dead raised as well. And John said, I guess that's the sign of the kingdom has arrived. That's a sign that the kingdom has arrived. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to open the eyes of the blind, to set the captives free, to heal the brokenhearted, the troubled hearted. Our message is the kingdom has arrived and there's miracle power to set people free from the powers of darkness. That is the message that we are to preach. So what do these signs teach us? about the kingdom of heaven. Well, every miracle is a foretaste of the resurrection that happens when Jesus comes again. It's an indication of God's goodness. It's an indication of God's desire for our wholeness and for our completeness. Miracles are always a sign of good news. Always a sign of good news. In the ministry of Jesus, there is never a punitive miracle. He never disciplines anybody with a miracle of judgment. doesn't happen in his ministry. As I said, no she-bears come out to maul us. No fire falls from heaven to consume people. Every miracle that Jesus performed is never against anybody. It's always for somebody. Always for them. Never against anybody. Not even his enemies. Always for them. No miracle of Jesus was ever done in judgment. Nobody is struck with leprosy. Nobody is struck with blindness. However, those who don't listen and see the signs are going to subject themselves to judgment later. But Jesus would not do that. Here's the important thing. Every miracle is an extension of mercy. We have spent a lot of time, many months, 
trying to get at what is God's nature. What is the heart of God? Who is this God that we serve? Who is this God that we love? And we have taken time and we've taken months to try to underline this in our heart. His name is mercy. His name is forgiveness. His name is compassion. His name is, I'd rather give you space to repent than bring judgment. His name is extended grace. He goes the extra mile and the extra mile and the extra mile. Yeah, you deserve judgment, but he's going to forestall judgment as long as he possibly can so that you might get a chance to repent. His nature is long-suffering, goodness, truth, keeping mercy for thousands. That's what his nature is. And the purpose of miracles is to demonstrate that character of God. That's what the purpose of every miracle is. It is not for self-promotion. It is not to meet our own needs. Every miracle is for the purpose of telling the oppressed that God is merciful and He has come in judgment power to judge the powers of darkness so the oppressed may go free. That's what a miracle is for. And that's as we pursue the things of God, that's got to be in our heart as well. That's got to be our motivation for seeking the presence of God. That's got to be our motivation behind the prayer meetings. We're asking God to come in His power in our midst. Why? It's because we yearn to demonstrate to a hell-bound society that God is love and He's merciful and the kingdom has arrived to set them free. Every miracle that we are seeking God to perform is to demonstrate that His name is mercy. That's the purpose of miracles. Jesus is at war with the powers of darkness. He's at war with Satan. Though there is no contest, of course, but all the miracles are directed against Satan, the one who holds people in darkness. Every miracle is a demonstration that He binds the strong man, that people under the strong man's dominion can go free. Every miracle is for the sake of relieving the oppressed. People are set free through miracles. He went about doing good. He preached the gospel, healing everywhere that he went. The fact is, through miracles, God's mercy becomes present. Now listen to this. Who's mercy given to? Who does he extend mercy to? Just his own people? I'm sorry, have you ever read about the Samaritans? Have you ever read about a Roman centurion? Have you ever read about a Syrophoenician woman? Have you read about helpless widows? Have you ever read where even healed people who were not even grateful that they were healed? Can you imagine Jesus healing, how many lepers was there, ten of them? And healed all ten of them and only one of them came back to say thank you? Can you imagine he even shows mercy to the most ungrateful people who don't even say thank you? He still shows mercy. This is the nature of our God. And this is the message that miracles are intended to give. Now, I like this thought. Nobody is turned away because they're unworthy. Oh, I'm not worthy to have a miracle. Join the club. Nobody is. 
He never turned anybody because they were unworthy. Oh, if you just know what I had done in my life, and if you just know the sins I had committed, and if you just know the thoughts that I've had in my head, and if you just know my past, you know, I'm not worthy. Who cares? Miracles are extensions of mercy, and your worthiness cannot buy a miracle. He gives miracles to the unworthy, and notice this in Scripture, and nobody is healed because they're good. Nobody. Oh, I deserve to be healed. (laughs) Nobody is healed on the basis that they're good. They're healed because God is merciful. Every miracle is a sign of the mercy of God. Every miracle is an expression of the compassion of God. Miracles are to give a sign to a lost and a dying world that the kingdom of heaven has arrived and the king is a merciful, compassionate father. That's what miracles are designed to teach. But people tend to pursue and follow miracles for wrong reasons. I guarantee you, we had the guest speaker here who was known for miracles. There would not be an empty seat. He'd come from all over the whole country for a miracle with wrong motivation. Because their definition of a miracle is something cataclysmic, something thunderous, outward display, triumphalism. That's not how Jesus viewed miracles. Matter of fact, Jesus often did miracles out of public sight. Often he did miracles out of public sight. Guy is blind. He took him away from the crowd before he spit in his eye. Is that because he didn't want to see anybody spit in his eye? Or, or when there's that, that father with the, the little boy that was ripped apart by demons. When Jesus saw a crowd coming, he said, I'm going to get this over with before the crowd gets here. He refused to do a lot of miracles in public because it's not about a show. It's about mercy for the oppressed. It's about mercy for the oppressed. Miracles are a means by which people can be set free so they can trust God. God wants to give a person a reason for trusting Him. And God does a miracle on their behalf. People are set free so they can become disciples. Mary Magdalene, out of whom He had cast seven devils. God set her free so she could be a disciple. Blind Bartimaeus received the sight back. Why? So he could follow Jesus in the way. To set people free so they can follow and learn about Jesus. Well, what about faith in all of this? I mean, there's so much teaching on faith. If we just had the faith. I'm going to ask you some questions. How much faith did the woman with the issue of blood have? How much Bible had she studied? How much confession had she made? How many years did she try to pump herself up and try to believe, if I just get enough of this word in me? How much did she do? The father who brought the demoniac boy to the disciples, the disciples couldn't cast it out. And he says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. How much, how, what level of faith did he have? We don't need God, we need faith. So the message seems to be. Who needs God when you got faith? And we've taught faith in such a way that faith has replaced God. If you just have the faith, 
And your confidence is in your ability to have faith, and your confidence is no longer in God. It's in your ability to muster up enough faith. Faith has replaced God. When Jesus says, according to your faith, he is not suggesting that you've really built yourself up and you've meditated in the Word and you've flexed your muscles and you learn how to conquer a headache, now you can learn to conquer the flu and then you can conquer the cancer and you built your way up. He's not saying anything of that nature whatsoever. When he says, great is your faith, he says that to people who've never studied the Word, who have no Scripture knowledge whatsoever. That Roman centurion was no expert in the Scriptures. The Syrophoenician woman was no expert in the Scriptures, and yet Jesus says both of them had great faith. So what does it mean when Jesus said they have faith? What it simply means is this. It is a confession of their complete helplessness in themselves. It is a confession that they need help. It is a confession, I need mercy because I am poor in spirit. And when they could say, I've got nothing, I'm miserable, I'm poor in spirit, I can't do this, and I need your help, Jesus says, wow, that's faith. We've turned faith into something else. Faith is a confession. I'm completely helpless. God, if you don't help me, I'm gone. That's what faith is. It's a confession of our utter helplessness. It's not a trust in the miraculous, but what it is is a trust in God. The miracles of Jesus is just an expression of the compassion of God. That's the message we communicate with miracles. And if we communicate anything else with miracles, we have misrepresented the kingdom of heaven. We're not here to gain crowds by miracles. We're not here to prove to anybody who we are by miracles. We are here, if we have to do this out of sight so nobody can see it, we are simply conduits of God's compassion and God's mercy with a message that the kingdom has arrived and the king happens to be a loving, heavenly father. And this is all about setting oppressed people free. That's why, we're, that's why we're pushing in prayer. That's why we're seeking God for His presence. Not to make a name, not to have power for power's sake, but to equip us to show compassion to a lost and a needy world. That's got to be the motive. Miracles are just part of the fact that the kingdom has already arrived. They're to be a normal part of the New Testament church. If... In the West, we de-emphasize the place of miracles. Then we simply are not expectant, and we simply don't take our Bible seriously. If we're happy with church without the gifts of the Spirit, if we're happy with church without miracles, if we're happy with outreach, without praying for the sick, we simply don't take our Bible seriously. We simply don't take it seriously. Because that's not what I read in the Bible. I read that miracles are the expression of God's mercy through the church to oppress people. If we overemphasize miracles, then we fall into the same trap as the enemies of Jesus. We end up seeking miracles for miracles' sake. We want to build a movement on miracles instead of a movement based on knowing God. 
we can't de-emphasize them and we can't over-emphasize them. Now here's where I can get into some trouble and let me speak just in generalities here. I've been around this stuff for a good more than four decades. I've been blessed to see many powerful things. Have you seen a person get out of a wheelchair? I have. I have seen it. I have witnessed it. I've seen some amazing things by way of healings, by the way of prophetic giftings. Thank God for what I've been privileged to see. But I also find when this kind of stuff happens, people gather with wrong motivations. Instead of seeing miracles as outreach for oppressed people, we see miracles as quick fixes to our own problems. And we have distorted the reason for miracles. Oh, I got a stomach problem. And I know what it's like to have stomach problems. And I know what it's like to have ulcers. And I know what it's like to have gallbladder issues. I've been through all that stuff. I know what it's like to have kidney stones. I've been through it. Painful stuff. I've been through that stuff. And, and no, it wasn't instantly delivered. It was hard work. It was difficult type of stuff. But sometimes we, we want a miracle to deliver us. And you don't need a miracle as much as you need a lifestyle change. A quick fix just allows you to keep on abusing your body. And that is a, a, a misuse. Pray for me, I never have any more headaches. You don't need prayer. You need to change your lifestyle so you're not so stressed out. And sometimes we want to run to God for miracle fixes where you actually it's not a miracle fix that you need. It's a change of lifestyle that you need. Now thank God... You can't put him in a box. And thank God he's merciful beyond our expectations. And sometimes in his goodness and his gracious, he heals us in spite of us. But we can't see miracles as quick fixes to our personal problems. Some people have a lot of issues in their life because they don't know how to forgive. Some people have a lot of issues in their life because they carry bitterness and grudges and hate and these kinds of things. And they, and they don't like the, what it does to them physically. So come for a miracle, so get rid of this stuff, when the real issue is much deeper than that. You need a heart transplant, folks. That's hard to preach sometimes, but it has to be taught sometimes. The reason we're seeking the miraculous is because we have compassion on people who are oppressed. If you want to get the heart of Jesus for the miracles, we have compassion for people who are oppressed. That's the purpose. That's the goal. That's what's got to have in our heart. We need not to have a God who's at our beck and call, but we need mercy and compassion. And the world needs to know that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Church, it's right for us to pray because they did it in the book of Acts. Acts 4, verses 29 and 30. It's right for us to pray that God would extend His hand to do miracles. They were being persecuted, and their response, Lord, you see all this person coming against us? Tell you what, God, let's do them in by going merciful back to them. Lord, would you extend your hand to perform signs and wonders in the name of your child, Jesus? 
And the house was shaking when they had prayed. And they were filled with boldness and they proclaimed the word of God. I want to tell you from my own experience. Back 35 years ago. You know when Darla and I were pioneering a church back in Canada. I can't believe it was that long ago. We emphasized the miraculous. We did. I don't know how to describe some of the things that we saw. How do you describe a wind blowing through a room where the saints are gathered? And you could feel, everybody could feel the wind. And as it blew through the room, people fell out in the power. Nobody touched them. Nobody. The presence of God went... How do you explain that? We expected the miraculous. We expected it. We prayed for it. We fasted for it. We didn't have a church until we spent two hours in prayer before the church service. We had church at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, which means we were there at noon, on our knees, praying, and nobody ate Sunday mornings, we fasted, and we prayed for two hours before church started. We're hungry for the power of God. Hungry for the presence of God. How do you explain a man coming in with a, a heart condition, heart attacks in his life, hardly ever been in church in his life, and he's in the service and the power of God comes on him, he just crumples to the floor. He says, what's happening to me? He doesn't know. So we put him up. He falls again. He can't stand. So we put him against the wall. He can't even stand against the wall. He just slithers down. The power of God being present. Why we had church upstairs where there's no elevator, I don't know. The power of God fell. A lady, fairly good-sized lady, was out. The power of God took her. She was gone in the power. That happened during the worship time. Trying to preach, she's still there. Just walk around her as we preach. Service is over. She's still there. Let's pack up the PA system. She's still there. Everything's in the van, ready to go home. She's still there. How strong are you? Pick her up. Wish there was an elevator. (laughs) Have to walk her down the steps. She's out. Got to get her home. Put her in my van. Put the seatbelt on her. Leaned her this direction. Turned the corners real slow. She was out. Got her home. Not supposed to do this, but I'm going into a woman's purse to find her keys. Open the door. Carry her in. Throw her on the couch. Lock the door behind us. I forget how long it was. Eight, nine hours later, she came out of it. We expected the miraculous. Why? I'll tell you why. Because the world is in darkness. And I'm not here just to say, say a sinner's prayer so you can go to heaven when you die. I want to see them free from the powers of darkness. The kingdom of heaven has come. And I want us to press into the things of the Spirit. 
And I want us to be radical in prayer. And I want us to seek God. Because it's not by might. It's not by power. But it's by the Spirit of the Lord. We need His presence. We need His power. Because this is not for us. This is so that the world can learn there is a God whose name is mercy. And He delights in setting oppressed people free. And that's what's... I want to make sure that that's what's in my heart. That's the motive. That's the only motive. That the world may know He's compassionate. And He's merciful. And that Jesus is alive. And the kingdom has come. So, if that makes me radical... I guess I'm radical. I've seen too much. I'm hungry for too much. We are not blessed with this beautiful place for our sake. I have discovered that it's much easier, and you'll discover this too, and I dare you to put this to the test. I have discovered it's much easier to pray for a sinner to receive a miracle than it is a saint. Much easier. We come with our traditional baggage, sometimes complicates our ability to call out to God. The sinner has no hope whatsoever, and if God doesn't show up in mercy, nothing happens. And some of the greatest miraculous things I have personally witnessed is when you have the boldness to pray for a miracle with somebody who doesn't even know Him. And you know what? In the context of the Gospels and the book of Acts, the miracles happened in terms of outreach. They are tools of outreach. We have turned them into tools of comfort for ourselves. They're not tools of comfort for ourselves. They are tools of outreach. And the greatest miracles I have personally witnessed and seen is when we're involved in praying for people who don't even know the Lord. I don't know the Lord. I don't care if you know. I'm going to pray for you anyway. I don't believe in that stuff. Well, you'll soon find out in a second. And when their life gets turned around and they're healed in their body, they have to acknowledge something. And I guarantee that if we start being bold and praying for unsaved people for miracles, we'd see a whole lot more of them. It doesn't take great faith on our part. It really doesn't. It just takes mercy and compassion. Let God do His part. My part is just to be compassionate towards people. The kingdom of heaven has come. You're hearing my heart. You're hearing my heart. God's good. God's good.